Welcome to a um, hot July. It is the um, season for special contribution, of course. And as uh, many of our First World churches are giving uh, during this time, um, I do want to reiterate our thanks, our appreciation for all of our sacrifice here in the Hampton Roads Church, especially within the Tidewater region, um, towards giving towards our special contribution this year. Um, God is going to take the money. He's going to bless it. It's going to be awesome. People in India are going to be taken care of. Obviously, the people here in the United States and in Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia specifically, are going to be taken care of as well. And so we're looking forward to that. If you're visiting here with us this morning, it is very, very good to have you. Glad that you could be a part of our fellowship. Glad that you could be a part of our worship service this morning. And I hope that you do find what you're looking for. Uh, we uh, were not here last week. We took the kids to camp. I uh, drove up to Philly and down uh, that day and then went up there again yesterday and picked them up. And wow, that's a long trip, especially when you've got five teenagers in the car and all they want is Chick-fil-A. So I do want to say um, thanks to Cody for preaching last week, though. Thanks so much. Um, pray for Anthony. He um, he got in the car sick, you know, sneezing, coughing, and I hope he didn't spread it to everybody else in the car. But um, he's at home um, trying to rest right now. I do want to take some time here before I get into the sermon to go through some changes that are happening within the church. Whenever you've got a church that's growing, there's always changes that need to happen. Change is not bad. Change is good. Amen? So, um, there's a new region being formed, okay? We've already got four regions, three on the south side, one on the peninsula, and a, la- or what, two year- a year or two ago, the Virginia Beach region split, or coastal split, into coastal and what is now South Beach, and Alex and Gio lead the South Beach region. So um, coastal, as it's continued to grow, um, is now splitting again. And Coastal is now splitting into a group called Norfolk, okay? And then the rest of that group, which is farther towards the oceanfront, will now be called North Beach. Jeff and Kelly Throne are going to lead the North Beach region, amen? So this is a great opportunity for for them to lead, for them to um, continue to grow in their ministry ability and ministry skills, ministry walk. And so that leads to some different things happening. Um, South Beach and Tidewater will remain South Beach and Tidewater. The, uh, minis- the, the role of churchwide teen minister that Jeff and Kelly have played for about six or seven years now, uh, that role will go away because, well, Jeff and Kelly are, are not, or they're going to be leading the region. So the teen ministries in each one of the regions, they're already being overseen by the evangelists and women's ministry leaders, but those ministries have been taking direction mostly from Jeff and Kelly. Since there's no more churchwide teen leadership role, uh, each teen ministry will be absorbed into their respective regions and will continue to be overseen by the region leaders, um, but the region leaders will now more thoroughly guide and direct those individual team ministries. Does that make sense? So Cody and Brittany are going to continue to lead our team ministry as normal. It's just that instead of getting direction from Jeff and Kelly, they'll primarily get it from Leslie and I. And it'll be the same thing on the peninsula, same thing in North Beach, because they'll have their own team ministry, same thing in South Beach, same thing in Norfolk, because they'll have their own team ministry as well. 
You might be wondering, well, what about the um, church-wide teen ministry um, events that are going to be happening? Because we typically have a, a parenting devotional. We have monthly church-wide teen devotionals. We have Thanks Taco Tuesday that the teens do. They have teen retreat. They have teen prom. And all these things are coordinated church-wide. Well, um, Alex and Gio will oversee that church-wide coordination of the events. And then Reese and Morgan, who were in our campus ministry, uh, they now lead the teens in the Norfolk region, and they're going to be the boots on the ground, kind of act- actively coordinating those church-wide um, events and functions. So just saying that, if you're a teen parent and you're wondering, how's my teen going to get fellowship, that's how it's all going to happen. Amen? Okay. So this leaves uh, Tidewater because Coastal is roughly 220 or so some odd people. That puts uh, North Beach at about 110, Coastal or Norfolk at about 110, South Beach is at roughly 115 people, Tidewater is roughly 185 people, okay? Um, And so that leaves us the, not just the largest numerically, but the most geographically spread out region on the south side. Guys, we got people anywhere on the south side, there's Tidewater people there, okay? We got people at the oceanfront. We got people in Norfolk. We got people in Portsmouth. We got people in North Carolina. We got people in Western Branch. We obviously, we got people in Chesapeake. We got people everywhere, okay? And so we are trying to be more geographically focused, not exclusively geographically focused, okay? Uh, our strategy here in Hampton Roads was a more geographically focused um, strategy as the years have gone by and as the regions have grown relationships just kind of happen and you end up with what we've got. So we need to, um, we need to focus here in, in Tidewater specifically. Um, the, the region is at a size where it's challenging for one ministry couple and the, the team that we've got to be sure that everybody's okay and to shepherd and to pastor effectively. And so what we're going to do, um, one, South Beach is going to take one of their Bible talks that geographically is in North Beach, and they're going to move it to North Beach. And then we're going to ask, or we have already asked, uh, two of our Bible talks. The first one is the Miles Bible Talk, which is right around Mount Trashmore. We're Cedric, Rachel. The Cedric and Rachel and LV and Marva Bible Talk, that Bible talk will be going to South Beach. That'll happen. We're so sad to see you guys. One person cheer, but it's not a cheering thing. Um, Oh, she said, no, I apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> so that, that group uh, will go to uh, South Beach at the beginning of August. And then the other group that will go is uh, Russell and Christina's Bible Talk. Russell and Christina Green's Bible Talk will also go to South Beach at the beginning of August as well. Now, there are some exceptions. Some of those people are going to remain in Tidewater. Because, again, we're not focused exclusively geographically. We're shooting for geography, but we do have to consider things like critical relationships. We don't want critical relationships to be broken if it affects somebody spiritually. Uh, We also have to consider leadership. We we do not want to lose key leadership roles and um, or just general key roles within the church. So, in other words, what I'm saying is this ain't a free for all. Okay. It's not like the borders have dropped, just go wherever you want to go, whatever's closest to you. We're not saying that at all. 
This is all a coordinated thing that we're all trying to do to be sure that we can continue to effectively evangelize Hampton Roads. So um, there are some other case-by-case situations that will happen as well. Um, as, as these changes happen, this will bring Tidewater down to roughly 150, 155 people, which does make it more manageable and helps us to be able to better shepherd. So we're announcing all these changes today. Um, this is, well, j- June 30th, July 1, roughly. Uh, we're announcing the changes today, but again, the moves won't actually happen until August 1st, okay? And we do plan for those Bible talks that are going, we plan on having a going away party for you guys at the end of July, okay? The last midweek in July will be a going away celebration uh, for you guys. So all of this leads me into um, Leslie and I's and our family's travel plans, because as all these transitions are happening, we won't be here. <laughs> but, <laughs> hello, but you will be, you'll be left in capable hands. Uh, Leslie and I are going out of town this Saturday, July the 6th. We'll be going up to Philadelphia. We'll be participating in Hope Youth Corps there for the following two weeks after that. Right? And they've asked us to be shepherds. So just kind of mature people because there's going to be 40 kids from all around the country participating in Youth Corps. And they just need some maturity and some stability to that group. So Leslie and I are going to go and serve in that regard. We'll be back on July the 21st. Um, Anthony will come with us. Brooke will stay and Brooke will be working. And then we'll be back for three days and we're going to head out to Trinidad and Tobago. Jump and wave, jump and wave. So we're going to have a ton of fun down in the Caribbean for their 30th anniversary celebration. So this is a big thing. Sam and Cynthia Powell from New York City are coming in. Sean and Robin, who used to lead the church there, they're coming in. Others from Atlanta, from Houston are coming in. They're going to have like a little mini conference and We're just going to have a really good time building up the church and encouraging them. Um, Thank you for your Change for the Caribbean contributions, which are helping Leslie and I to go. We haven't gotten all all counted up yet, but we're going to have that ready for everybody on Wednesday. And we'll announce who won, who lost, who's going to be serving, who's going to be served. Um, But we'll be back on July the 31st, or August 1st, really, we'll be back. So that means we'll be out for pretty much the entire month of July, okay? Um, but, so, but Ricky, Reggie, Joe, Tom, and Ed will be coordinating the leadership of the region while we're gone. Um, Reggie will be pushing point, so any of the really hard things that happen, be sure that you talk to Reggie, and he'll have all of the answers, okay? <laughs> he will handle everything. No, they, they, they are going, we all work together very, very fluidly. And um, they're all going to work together. The, the services have already been planned out midweek, Sundays, and everything else. So everything will be just fine, and everything will be great. Did I miss anything? Brooke is going to be coming with us to Trinidad, and Anthony will stay during that time. So sorry if I missed anything else. Yeah. All right, so turn with me to John chapter 7, please. <clears throat> Okay, it's, it's, it's 12.42. Warning, I'm going to go past 1 o'clock. I'm going to go past 1 o'clock. I know that your bellies are like crying out for Cracker Barrel and Golden Corral, but please, bear with me, okay? So, okay, good news. Our collection uh, today, this does not include... 
um, anything that was given online, but we collected just under $5,000 more for our special contribution, $4,957.04. Amen? Awesome. Thank you once again for all of you who have sacrificed and who have given. Um, Before I went to the full-time ministry, I worked for General Electric at their aircraft engine division in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I went there, and it was a fascinating place to be because I don't know if you've ever looked at something like a jet engine. You can't really see it. As you you board the plane, you've got the, the cowl or the covering around the engine, but there's this engineering masterpiece inside of there. And I had the chance to be a part of Uh, designing these engines, manufacturing these engines, repairing these engines. And people would always ask me, well, man, how do those things work? Because they're like incredibly heavy. A lot of it's made out of titanium, but yet the thing goes up into the air and allows a plane to fly, whatever, 30,000 feet, on and on and on. And we would always try to make it very simple. And we'd say that an engine works doing four simple things. And we called it suck, squeeze, bang and blow, okay? That's the four parts of of an aircraft engine. It sucks air in, it squeezes that air together, it compresses it, it sets it on fire, bang, it creates an explosion, and then it blows it out the back end and that creates thrust. It's the same way that a, a car engine works. Sucks in the air, the piston squeezes it together in the chamber, right? The, few, the uh, spark plug sets off an explosion, bang, right? And then it blows out the exhaust. Einstein said that the definition of genius is taking the complex and making it simple. Yeah. Jesus was a master at this. Yeah. Think about the parable of the sower. Something as complex as how does the human heart respond to the message of the gospel. Who could ever explain that to where a human being could understand it? No one. But Jesus takes something as simple as a farmer scattering seed and how these different plants either grow or don't grow or how the seed is eaten up by a bird. And he uses that to describe how God's word grows in the heart of a human being. Jesus obviously was a genius. He took the complex and he made it simple. In our passage this morning, what we're looking at is a scene of confusion. We're looking at a scene of complexity. And as we go through, Jesus makes things very simple in the end. He points to himself as the source of eternal life. Tonight, or not tonight, we will get out of here before tonight, okay? (laughs) Today, the title is simply, Who is He? Who is he? Please pray with me and we'll jump into our verse for this afternoon. Uh, Father, we just appreciate you so much. So thankful that we can participate in the divine nature. So grateful that we can sacrifice in, in any way, whether it be our time, our energy, our money to give towards your cause and towards your mission. Please, we, we pray and we ask that every single dollar, penny, nickel, dime, quarter that's given, that it would be multiplied and that it would go towards glorifying you. That souls ultimately would be saved, not just in India, but here in the United States and all around the world as well. Help us to grasp and embrace the very clear and simple message of your son, Jesus Christ. That he is the Messiah, he is the source of eternal life, and that we can all come to him and drink, and drink freely, 
and be saved. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 7, Cody had gone through, I believe, verses 1 through 24. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. It says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus meant, I'm going to heaven, and y'all ain't going. That's what he meant. (laughs) On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? That is where Jesus was born, by the way. Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And so we'll stop there. You know, from the beginning, John's gospel has been focused on answering a very simple question Who is Jesus? And in chapter 1, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Nathanael calls him the Son of God, the King of Israel. He fulfills Messianic prophecy in John chapter 2 when he turned over the tables in the temple. And in John chapter 4, Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to the woman at the well. He says, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. Jesus calls God his Father. In John chapter 5, which makes him the son of God. And of course, in John chapter 6, he calls himself the bread of life. 
Another way that we see John constructing his gospel is around these major festivals or feasts. And here in John chapter 7, Jesus goes up to the festival or to the feast of tabernacles or booths. And this festival was to remember God's provision to the people while they were in the desert. And so to do that, they make these makeshift huts or booths on top of their house, and they live in these huts or booths for the length of the festival, which ran about eight days. In Leviticus 23, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month is the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But when Jesus finally makes it to this festival, there's a lot of confusion about who he is. We would have read about some of that confusion last week when Cody preached, and I just read about the rest of it just a second ago. But I want to draw your attention to John chapter 7, verse 12. I just want to look at some of these um, statements of confusion. Verse 12, it says, Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He's a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. They couldn't figure out how, uh, how he knew so much about uh, the law and about God without having been trained by the Jewish rabbis. So in John chapter 7, verse 15, it says the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And then they accused him of having a demon. John chapter 7, verse 20, it says, you're demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? In this context here, it was a colloquial saying to say that you were demon, demon possessed and it meant You're crazy. So these guys were not like the Pharisees who legitimately accused him of demon possession. In this instance, they're accusing him of being crazy. And so they really just couldn't get their, their, their minds around Jesus. Like, who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? Is he crazy? Is he some kind of a deceiver? And in John chapter 7, verse 25, it says at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly. They're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? And then even after Jesus makes it very clear who he is, the source of eternal life in John chapter 7, verse 40, it says, On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. And so for the last 2,000 years, people have been confused about Jesus. Who is this man? And in the 1940s, during World War II, C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he, he writes about some options of who Jesus could be. And this is what he writes. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. And the thing that people tend to say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Now remember, this is 1940s kind of writing here. Or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about either was and is just what he said, or else a lunatic, or something worse. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. Again, that was C.S. Lewis roughly 75 years ago in London, speaking to his context, his day at the time. And as I read this and as I consider John chapter 7 and the confusion of the world today about Jesus, I have to ask myself, what do people say about Jesus today in 2019 here in the United States? And in my experience, yours perhaps is different, but there seems to be a strange disconnect about Jesus. Many that I meet uh, verbally say that he's the son of God. They seem to understand that, but somehow that doesn't quite translate into, well, that means that I actually need to be following him with my life. People justify, well, you know, nobody's perfect. People rationalize, well, he knows my heart. And in essence, people want the benefits of Jesus without the responsibility of Jesus. When we preached on the peninsula a few weeks ago, I told the story about a guy that I met in the trails as I was out riding my bike. And uh, this guy, he no longer claimed to be a Christian, although he had at one point in his life. And uh, he said, well, today I just want to do good deeds. And he said, you know, I figure that Uh, If I do a lot of good deeds, that that will outweigh all of the bad stuff that I do. And he says, well, in the end, you know, I think God will just kind of put the good on one side and the bad on the other. And I'm just hoping that my good outweighs the bad. And he says, I'm sure God will just let me on in. I I, I said, well, I I don't know where you're getting that from. You're, You're literally making that up on your own because the Bible does not say that. The Bible or Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the father except through me. It's not about the deeds that we do, how much is good and how much is bad. What matters is whether or not we're submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what gets us in, in a sense. And so this guy was literally making up his own religion by choosing to believe what he wanted to believe. Now, I believe that if I would have asked him, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? I firmly believe that he would have said, yes, I believe that. But for him, that in no way connected him to the fact that he needed to follow Jesus with his life. And so what about you? What about us as a church? Who is he? Who is? I point and the screen goes out. Who is he? (laughs) Sorry about this screen. We've got some intermittent issues there. Is he merely 
a good man? Is he a deceiver? Is Jesus crazy? Is he just a legend? Or is he the Messiah, the source of eternal life and Lord of our lives? Because that answer means something for how we live. We cannot answer that question and then leave here thinking that means nothing. Again, the strange disconnect that seems to be out there in the world today. I believe in Jesus, yet I don't live anything like Jesus wants me to live. I've not brought myself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, once we're in the church, I believe this process can kind of go in reverse. He starts out as Lord on the day that we're baptized, right? But then slowly he becomes like a good moral teacher. Lots of wise sayings, but the obedience, the sacrifice, and the self-denial of lordship is lost. Has this happened to you, brothers and sisters? It might have if you're okay with being at odds with another or brother or sister in the church. And you feel like you don't need to get reconciled. If you feel like, well, I just don't need to talk to them. I don't like them. They don't like me. We don't agree. If you think that way, then this perhaps is happening to you. Jesus' teachings are just good stuff to quote, good stuff to say. If you haven't made every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace and you've stopped fighting for unity, or in particular, if you choose to talk about one another instead of talking to one another, which is gossip, then you would see Jesus as a great moral teacher versus Lord. If you stop prioritizing the kingdom of God in your life, if you've become simply a Sunday Christian, some of you I only see on days like today. Where are you the rest of the week? Your work and your recreation perhaps have become more important than God's work. If that's the case, Jesus has become a great moral teacher. You think to yourself, well, I'm a good person and that's all I need to be is a good person instead of living a faithful life that is inspiring and challenging to other people. If you think that way, then Jesus is merely a great moral teacher. It's kind of quiet out there right now. Basically, if following Jesus is no longer painful, if following Jesus is not, you're not being stretched and you're not sacrificing yourself in any way, if self-denial if self is no longer part of your life, then Jesus is merely a good moral teacher. Jesus is Lord. And the call is always to not merely believe, but to actually deny self and follow the Son of God. Do what He does. Live as He has lived. Walk in His footsteps. Sacrifice in the way that He has sacrificed. Sweat like He has sweat. Give like He has given. Follow Him in thought 
in word and in deed. This is where we need to be as the church of God. Amen. Are you with me? Not confused about who Jesus is, but clear, clear in our understanding and in our daily walk that Jesus was and is Lord. Amen? Amen. Point two. Second point. Last point. We're doing good. The source of eternal life. This Feast of Tabernacles or this Festival of Booths, it provided, again, a time to remember how God had delivered his people from bondage and how he had provided for them in the wilderness. The Jews do still observe this uh, tradition, this feast today, and they actually follow detailed blueprints that are written out in the Mishnah as to how they're supposed to construct these booths on top of their homes today. And since it happens in October, um, Tabernacles marks, a, it's, it's one of the most joyful of feasts because it marks the end of the harvest season in the harvest period. Now, in addition, at the Feast of Tabernacles, there were sacrifices that were made, um, sin offerings, burnt offerings that were made. And in preparation for the morning sacrifice, on the last day of the festival, okay, that was like the most greatest, most joyful, joyous day, the, the high priest would come out of the temple and he would walk down to the Pool of Siloam and he would carry a golden pitcher and he would get down to the Pool of Siloam and he would dip his pitcher into the Pool of Siloam and he'd get some of this water and he'd walk, walk it back up to the temple again and he'd walk into the Holy of Holies and as he was doing that, the people would be singing and reciting Isaiah chapter 12 which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And he would walk into the temple and he would pour this water into one of the basins next to the altar. The altar would run down in front of the altar and then there would be another one there where the blood would run down. They would mix together and it would kind of symbolize this cleansing, um, uh, renewing time for the people of Israel. And there was a lot of joy to that. And so this is what was going on as Jesus makes his statement in John 7, 37. And this is what Jesus was alluding to. So if you could imagine this great part of the festival where there's lots of fanfare and people following the high priest and trumpets and songs and people singing Isaiah, Isaiah 12, the verse that I just read. Jesus, he gets up and it says in verse 37 on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, prior to Acts chapter 2, the Spirit had worked upon man externally. But after Pentecost, the Spirit began to work within men internally. And this is what Jesus is referring to. And comparing physical thirst to spiritual thirst... Jesus offers the Holy Spirit to anyone who chooses to believe in him. This is the promise that we have today. This is the joy that we have today. God's spirit living in man. Emmanuel, God with us, not just with us, but within us. And so amidst all of this confusion, Jesus stands up and he makes things very clear. He is the source of eternal life. He is the source of salvation. He's the son of God. He's the king above all kings. He's the Lord above all lords. 
the source of forgiveness and spiritual satisfaction for all men for all of eternity. And not just once a year when a sacrifice is made, but once forever. And this living water that Jesus gives is not about getting a drink and then coming back next week when you're thirsty. It's about getting the drink and being overwhelmed with the water such that you never need to drink again. You are always satisfied. And I don't know if you caught it or not. In verse 38, look there with me again. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them, not upon them, not like a waterfall landing on top of your head, not like a shower when you go home this afternoon. He's talking about the water fountain. He's talking about the geyser. What's the one in in Yellowstone National Park? Old Faithful. He's talking about Old Faithful being planted inside of each and every one of us such that the water just comes bursting out. It comes springing out of us all the way up to eternal life. It's an amazing thing. And this water is there not just for ourselves. It's there to refresh others as well. It doesn't flow upon us. It flows from within us to outside of us so that others can be refreshed at the same time. In Trinidad, there are many naturally occurring springs. There's actually one in the middle of a village up on a hill in a village called Laventil. And it's at the intersection of probably three or four streets that all come together. In Trinidad, if if there's a naturally occurring spring, you can't claim that as your own, even if it's on your land. The government takes that spring. This particular spring, um, since no one could claim it, they built streets all around it. And literally, you're driving down the street, and there's this spring of water. This water is just coming up out of the street. It's just there, and it's running on down the hill. It's everybody's spring. It's not one person's spring to take it and hog it, but it's there for everybody to use. And so therefore, you see people washing their dishes in the spring. You see people with bars of soap out there, and they're taking baths in this spring. They got on their shorts, by the way, but they're taking baths in the spring. They're doing all kinds of stuff with this water because it's for everybody. The point I'm making is that we all have this spring inside of us. We cannot hog it. We can't keep it on our own piece of land to water our crops, water our fields, take care of our families. These springs have to belong to everybody. They've got to overflow out of our lives and got to enrich and encourage other people. And we've got to take the message of Jesus to other people through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Amen? Amen. And this is not a promise, but this is the reality that we have in Jesus Christ. We have His Spirit dwelling and living inside of us right now. That's an encouraging thing, isn't it? For everyone else, the invitation by Jesus is clear. He stands up. Verse 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Why would Jesus stand and say something in a loud voice? Because he wants everybody to hear it. He wants everybody to hear it. And he says, let anyone, anyone, anyone means just that. Anyone. Many times at wedding ceremonies, uh, the, the ceremony itself is open, but the reception is by what? Invitation only. 
Jesus is saying this isn't by invitation only. This is like the wedding party. Anybody can participate in this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've been through in your life. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much you make. It's for everyone. And he says it's for those who are thirsty. Those who are looking. Those who are searching. Those who are spiritually dry. Those who have come to see their need for God. If that's you out there this morning, Jesus is for you. And this invitation is for you. He says, come to me. Not come to my rules, not come to my regulations, not come to a place, a building, a cathedral, bells, ding dong, stained glass. He says, come to me, a relationship with me. Get to know me. I am a person. Come to me and drink. Drink. You ever been to a water fountain or turned on a hose on a hot summer day? Oh, my goodness. And you just let that hose just kind of fill your mouth so much. Just, oh, the water just kind of coming all out of your mouth. You're just drinking. You just can't drink enough. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're thirsty, if you're tired, if, man, life has just been beating you down. If you feel like I just don't know my way. I need something greater, something better, something more powerful in my life. Jesus says, come to me, drink all you want. Have as much as you need. Be filled and not just be filled, but fill other people as well. Partake, engage, enjoy, and streams of living water will flow from within you as well. There was a time in my life that I was confused And that I doubted who Jesus was. I was just like these people at the festival. I decided to put Jesus to the test and do what he said. Not just believe in him. I threw away all of my rap CDs. I stopped cursing and I stopped drinking alcohol. This is an overnight decision. And I started trying to be nice to people because I was not nice at the time. And my life was changed almost overnight. Almost overnight, and it became clear to me who Jesus was. I'm talking about clarity in the midst of confusion. If your life is confusing, God, why is this happening to me? Why can't I do and get the things that I want? Why does it feel like it's roadblock after roadblock after roadblock? What Jesus is saying is, come to me and drink. Do what I'm telling you to do. Live the way I'm telling you to live. I'm not just a great moral teacher. I'm Lord. And I'm Lord over your life. Submit to me. And things will become much more clear. If you have any doubts whatsoever as to, as to who Jesus is, I encourage you to take the same John 7, 17 challenge that I took. Jesus says in John 7, 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. If you have not come to Jesus, come to Jesus. Don't just believe. Put his words into practice. Do what he says and see if your doubts And if your confusion is not made clear, 
See if you aren't satisfied by the source of eternal life. And so to close in a world full of confusion about Jesus, he has made himself very clearly known. He's not merely a good moral teacher, nor is he an evil liar or a crazed lunatic. He's the son of God. He's the source of eternal life and he's Lord of all. Let's all come to him and drink. Let's live his words and let's enjoy eternal life. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Tony. Let's all bow our heads first and uh, before we close with the final song. Uh, Lord, Father, thank you so much for this beautiful Sunday that you've provided, God. And uh, I know it's, it's been super uh, exceeding in heat, God, but it's so great to uh, come together as a family in a, an air-conditioned building just to worship you. I just pray that we can all become sources of overwhelming eternal life and we can 